Welcome to Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me, as always, is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University, and my co-author of the book, Statistics Behind the Headlines, and... We're doing it again, John. Oh, yeah, baby. (laughs) One more time into the breach. That's right. We are reading another chapter from our book for you. It is Chapter 4, Speedy Sneakers, Technological Boosterism or Sound Science. Oh, it was a a fun chapter. I I mean, it was fun to write this one just because it had elements of of how an experiment was done and, and having both human runners testing different shoe types and also having some experiments done to to look at at the physics of these shoes and how responsive they were. I mean, you know, and if that doesn't sell you, you just got to listen to the program. (laughs) The chapter was based, as all of our chapters in the book are, off of a news story. This one was published uh, by uh, uh, Quartz.com. Researchers say a new Nike shoe can actually make you a faster runner. And then we also talked about a journal article that had uh, talked about the research that the the Quartz article was um, discussing. So that's it. That's Chapter 4, Speedy Sneakers. Hope you enjoy. Story Summary Athletes, amateur and professional alike, are constantly looking for things that can help them be better, stronger, and faster. The story by Mark Bain, writing for Quartz, focuses on new running shoe by Nike. The shoe, the Zoom Vaporfly 4%, is supposed to help runners run faster using 4% less energy than they would normally, or wearing other shoes. In his reporting, Bain details a study by University of Colorado researchers that seems to suggest the shoe might actually live up to its promise. The story features quotes from the study that detail just how the researchers went about testing how much zoom the shoes possess. The reporter then details what real-world evidence might be necessary to prove the shoe's benefits hold up outside a lab setting. It's one thing to be faster in a controlled environment, another to be faster when contending with bad road or weather conditions. The story wraps up with a consideration of what this kind of technology might mean for the future of running as a sport. What ideas will you encounter in this chapter? Participants and experiments may be selected based on certain criteria. Consider how these study subjects might differ from you. The variable that is measured may be a surrogate for the true response of interest. Good experiments control for extraneous sources of variability that might impact a relationship of interest. Well-designed experimental studies share common key ingredients. There is a logic used when testing hypotheses about treatments or different factors, including types of running shoes. A news story is first framed for a particular focus. Uncritical journalistic boosterism is a factor to consider when examining stories. What is claimed? Is it appropriate? The headline for this story claims that a new shoe makes you faster. This featured sports story from Quartz summarized a scientific paper published in the journal Sports Medicine. However, before you go out and buy new kicks, the story notes that this new shoe was designed for, quote, serious marathoners, end quote, and that it has used 4% less energy on average than the previous top racing shoe manufactured by Nike. The chain of logic is that less energy translates into an ability to maintain a faster pace and thus a faster time for a race. Who is claiming this? 
Researchers at the University of Colorado are claiming that the energy expenditures associated with running in a new shoe were less than running in shoes from other companies. This university-based research was funded by the shoe manufacturer Nike and included two authors who were employees of Nike. The story notes that researchers disclosed the conflict of interest and received ethical approval to conduct the study from the local university institutional review board. Research requires funding. Knowing who funded the research may help you evaluate whether a published result is what you might expect. Reading research. Always ask if the authors have a vested interest in the study outcome. Reading research. Research requires approvals, particularly if human subjects are involved. Institutional review boards evaluate whether the merit of conducting a research study offsets the risk for participants. Why is it claimed? An experiment was conducted to evaluate the, I'm going to start it again from that title, in three, two, why is it claimed? An experiment was conducted to evaluate the, quote, energetic costs of running, end quote, with a newly developed running shoe versus two shoes routinely used by marathoners, another Nike shoe and the Adidas shoe worn by the then world record holder. The study authors noted that these two comparison shoes, or previous versions of these shoe designs, were worn by the 10 fastest competitors to date. The researchers conducted an experiment on the impact of shoe type on energy use. As we see below, experiments typically include some aspects of randomization, replication, and control comparisons. So why combine the machine study with the human experiment? The mechanical response might not translate directly into human performance. The human study adds, quote, ecological, end quote, validity to the analysis since the comparison is in runners using the shoes in laboratory natural conditions. The study covered by Quartz actually reported two experiments. One, machine-induced physical stress that produced measurements of, quote, mechanical energy stored and returned, end quote, for each shoe, and two, a study of elite runners using these shoes on a treadmill. The machine mimicked what happens to a shoe when you run. Your foot hits the pavement, the shoe cushions your step by the sole compressing, and then the sole of the shoe returns back to shape. The new shoe design had a greater, quote, energy return, end quote, than the two other shoes. The experiment with the runners measured energy consumption, quote, ground reaction forces, end quote, and lactic acid buildup when running a five-minute test run. Each runner ran in each of the three shoe designs at three different training speeds, 14, 16, and 18 kilometers an hour. Runner physiological and, quote, energetic responses, end quote, were measured. The energy use by runners wearing the new shoe was reported to be about 4% less on average than the energy use by runners wearing the two comparison shoes. Is this a good measure of impact? It is hard to imagine evaluating different shoe designs using any measurements better than the experience of runners using the shoes. The researchers noted that running speed is determined by oxygen consumption, lactate thresholds, and, quote, energetic cost of running, end quote, with the last feature being of primary interest to the researchers. One serious question to consider is, are you a member of the same population from which the sample of runners was obtained? Reading research. Don't expect to know about all the variables in a study unless you happen to be a specialist in this area. 
lactate threshold, anyone? How is the claim supported? The researchers described the design of the new prototype shoes and properties of the shoes, talked about a mechanical study to test these properties in the three shoe brands being evaluated, and reported a study of runners that was designed to explore human experience with the shoes. The study of the runners involved the comparison of the three shoe types at three different running speeds that were set on a treadmill. What evidence is reported? How would you design an experiment to evaluate the performance of different running shoes? Would you recruit volunteers from your local running club to run in these shoes and then report back to you? Perhaps you might ask one-third of the volunteers to use the prototype shoe, one-third to use one of the current brands, and one-third the other current brand. Not a bad idea, but what if you were unlucky and all the best runners in the club were assigned one of the shoe types? Ideally, the group should be as similar as possible prior to evaluating the differences between the shoes. As we see below, each participating runner ran in each shoe type. A comparison of shoe type controls for differences that might exist between each runner. Studies of experimental factors should exhibit some randomization of conditions, some replication of these conditions, and some control or comparison group. Reading research. Look for details about randomization, replication, and control when reviewing experiments. Experimenters often impose selection criteria on participants in a study. At a simple level, this filters out some of the variability that might be expected in study participants. A set of male, 31 minute per 10 kilometer size 10 shoe runners is clearly a subgroup from the population of all runners. This was a high performing group who could successfully complete a study where they ran six five minute quote trials end quote during a day. Randomization. As hinted above, the simplest type of randomization in an experiment would randomly assign shoe types to some subset of runners in a study. In such studies, a set of runners might be split into three groups where each group would be assigned a particular shoe type for use for measuring responses of interest. This type of design would use some randomizing mechanism. Now, think the equivalent of observing the result of tossing a three-sided coin. Uh, well, not a very useful for slot machines, but, but may work as a mental image to do the shoe type assignment in hopes that the runners in each of the three groups would be as similar as possible prior to running in the new shoes. Generally, such an experimental design would require more runners in the study than any alternative design such as the one used here. In this study, each runner did a five-minute treadmill run at a specific pace in each shoe with a different pace set on three separate days of assessment, running at that pace in each shoe twice a day. Thus, a runner ran six five-minute runs each day, and each runner was randomly assigned to a sequence of runs with shoe types each day. A, quote, mirrored order, end quote, or sequence of runs on a day with three runners randomized to each of the three sequences. If the shoe types are labeled a, quote, mirrored order, end quote, or sequence of runs on a day with three runners randomized to each of six sequences. If the shoe types are labeled S1, S2, and S3, then the possible mirrored orders would be sequence 1, S1, S2, S3, S3, S2, S1. Sequence 2, S1, S3, S2, S2, S3, S1. Sequence 3, 
S2, S1, S3, S3, S1, S2. Sequence 4, S2, S3, S1, S1, S3, S2. Sequence 5, S3, S1, S2, S2, S1, S3. And finally, sequence 6, S3, S2, S1, S1, S2, S3. Here, the first sequence, S1, S2, S3, S3, S2, S1, corresponds to running the first five-minute run using shoe brand S1, the second five-minute run using shoe brand S2, and so on, until the final five-minute run was using shoe brand S1 again. Why use these sequences instead of S1, S1, S2, S2, S3, S3, or some other pattern? What if there was a systematic difference in energy use in the first of the five-minute runs versus the last runs? You wouldn't want this to confound the comparison of the shoe types. This randomization of a sequence of runs helps avoid this confounding. Other key ideas to keep in mind include the following. Replication. No one would believe a study with a single runner in each shoe type. Having more than one runner allows you to explore the impact of shoe type in the presence of the variation you would expect among runners. The question that is often part of good statistical thinking is, do you observe a signal amidst the noise of different subjects? Control. Experiments usually will compare some new product or treatment to existing products or treatments. The new prototype shoes in this particular research were not compared to running barefoot. They were compared to the shoes worn by the best, most elite runners in recent races. It is news if the new prototype is better than the, quote, best, end quote, shoes on the market at the time, but not very exciting if the new prototype was only superior to running in flip-flops or on bare feet. Another way to think of this, quote, control, end quote, condition could be a standard condition or current best practice. The use of a no-treatment control group in a study of new medical treatment for some diseases would be unethical if effective treatments were already available. What is the quality or strength of the evidence? Each of the two runs per shoe type was averaged for each runner for this analysis. The analysis involved the comparison of two factors, shoe type, primary factor of interest, and running speed. Each runner contributed 18 measurements to the running part of the study. Three running speeds times three shoe types times two replicates or running speed shoe type combinations. They also contributed additional information useful for baseline performance and other responses. The researchers did this study because they believed that the new prototype shoe was designed to be superior to existing shoe technology. This is analogous to a new pharmaceutical product being tested because it's believed to be superior to existing products. However, what they might find is that the new prototype shoe is no different than the other types of shoes being considered. This is where data from an experiment come into play. If you were going to conduct research to measure the performance of something, in this case a running shoe prototype, what might you do given what you've read so far? The simple response to the question above is to collect running performance data for the three shoe types and see if the new prototype uses less energy than the comparison shoes. Here is where statistical thinking is needed. You know that even if the shoes were the same in terms of energy use, you may see the prototype using less energy by chance. Let's simplify the experiment to explore this in more detail. Suppose you want to compare only two shoe types. 
If you compared the experience of 18 runners and observed the prototype shoe being superior to the other shoe nine times, you might say, this is what I might expect if the new shoe was similar to the old shoe. Okay, so what if 18 runners resulted in the new shoe judged superior by 10 runners? Here, channeling you again, it's not surprising to see 10 runners with the new shoe exhibiting superior performance, even if the shoes were similar. In a more trivial coin-tossing curse of introductory statistics course analogy, you would not be surprised that a fair coin tossed 18 times resulted in 10 heads, even though you expected 9. Okay, how about if the prototype old shoe test with 18 runners results in 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 or 18 times with the prototype preferred? Would you still say, I believe the shoes are the same in terms of performance when you observe 18 runners with the prototype preferred? Or would you reject a belief that these shoes were comparable and conclude the prototype shoes were superior? How much evidence would you require to declare the prototype shoe appears superior? Here, the testing process for this simple study might be summarized as research hypothesis, Prototype shoe superior to the other shoe type. No effect hypothesis. Two shoe types are the same in performance. Data collected. Number of times the prototype shoe was preferred in a test of 18 runners. How much data is needed for you to conclude the prototype shoe is superior? Reading research. Formal hypothesis testing involves looking at sample data to decide between two competing hypotheses about a population. So how do you decide how superior is defined? In this study, superior is defined in terms of the mean energy expended by a population of runners using the new prototype shoe being less than the mean energy expended by a population of runners using the current shoes. Could you make a mistake? Sure. You might conclude the prototype is superior when it's not, or conclude the shoes were similar when the prototype was superior. In formal testing of hypotheses, investigators will often set an acceptable level of one of these errors. Here, the researchers reported a level of significance of 5% was used to declare that a difference in energy use exists among the shoes. In this case, if there was truly no difference among the shoes, then there is only a 1 in 20 chance, 5%, that the study would declare a difference exists. Errors can occur in decision-making. You can decide there is a difference when there really isn't, aka false positive error, or you can decide there is no difference when there really is a difference, aka false negative error. Many research reports will summarize statistical tests using p-values, quantities that are often compared to these levels of significance. A p-value represents the unusualness of an experimental result assuming a particular hypothesis is true and assuming some underlying statistical model is true. Small p-values, close to zero, suggest that something unusual has occurred, including the hypothesis you assumed is not correct or the model underlying the calculation is not correct. The use and misinterpretation of p-values led the American Statistical Association to publish a statement on p-values and significance testing in 2016 that should be required reading for background use and consumption of p-values. Is the claim reasonable in itself? Does prior belief impact my belief? Confirmation bias. Our prior belief, 
was that the technology associated with sports performance would improve over time. Thus, you may not be surprised by the result from analyzing the human runners or from the machine tests of the shoes. The experimenters essentially used each runner as their own control since every runner ran in each of the three shoes. As such, the difference in the shoe brands are evaluated within the same runner, and then the results are pooled over the runners for the analysis. The experimenters also controlled other potential confounding factors to the extent possible by imposing selection criteria for participants. You had to be a serious male runner to qualify for the study, and adding weights to shoes so that they would be as similar as possible prior to the run. One shoe was heavier than the other, so this adjustment made the shoes comparable with respect to this important determinant of energy use. Ultimately, the experiment merited the conclusion in the headline that the new shoe used less energy and the implication that this would translate into faster running times seems like a reasonable stretch. How does this claim fit with what is already known? The researchers cited literature that identified factors that impact running velocity oxygen uptake, lactate threshold, and energy cost. By including elite runners, they essentially had study participants with similar oxygen uptake and lactate thresholds. This allowed them to compare energy costs directly. The authors cite the literature related to running shoe design and energy cost. The research study wraps up with citations concerning the relationship of shoe design to the energy costs of running and explanations of why this might be expected. Predictions of how a 4% energy savings might translate into a world record marathon time were also discussed, although the researchers noted that the fastest pace studied in the experiment was slower than the pace set in the world record marathon time. Reading research. The introduction, the first section, of most articles presents the context and motivation for research studies. The discussion, last section, puts the experimental results in context along with identifying limitations, caveats, and potential future work. The Quartz story included an interview with independent experts who reviewed the results. One expert affirmed that the study methods were appropriate for studying the energetic costs of running in different shoes, but would have felt more confident in the conclusions with a larger sample size. The other experts suggested that runners might run differently if they know they're using some new prototype shoe. The idea that your response might be impacted, possibly subconsciously, by knowledge of the treatment, here shoe, you received and are running with, is another factor that impacts a result. This is a reason why medical studies use blinding in study design, e.g. a double-blind study is one where neither patient nor physician knows the treatment being received, and why experiments look to control for potential placebo effects in studies. How much does this matter to me? This study evaluated shoes in 18 male athletes who could run a 10-kilometer race at a 3.1-minute-per-kilometer pace, a.k.a. a 5-minute-mile pace for those of you morally opposed to metric measures or a comparable pace. In addition to being really fast runners, these athletes needed to fit into size 10 shoes. The only qualification that one of us could meet for participating in this study is that I can wear size 10 shoes. Even on my most fit running days, I could not have qualified for this pacing requirement. In fact, I confess that I couldn't have achieved a five minute per mile pace even if I was being chased down a gentle hill by Slenderman, a mountain lion, or even just a very fat dog. 
The issue then becomes, how do we think about this result? Clearly, these runners are sampled from a population of which one of us is a member. However, they are from a population of elite runners, and thus this result suggests that the new running shoe technology may translate into new records. The results of this study are still intriguing for more recreational runners. Less energy costs should translate into greater velocity regardless of the quality of the runner. If more energy is returned based on the responses in the mechanical study and less energy is used by elite runners, then a recreational runner might want to see if there was a benefit. Finally, this study begs the question of whether a similar shoe is available for women runners, and if so, would the results be expected to be the same? Considering the coverage, when a journalist sits down to write a story, one of the first things they have to decide is what angle to take. Every choice from that moment onward influences how the journalist frames the story they're telling. The concept of framing is an important one in the field of communication and media studies, and one we introduce in Chapter 2 of this book, but it's also a concept that has a number of different definitions. Perhaps the most widely cited definition is that of Robert Entman. For Entman, quote, to frame is to select some aspects of a perceived reality and make them more salient in a communicating text, in such a way as to promote a particular problem definition, causal interpretation, moral evaluation, and or treatment recommendation for the item described, end quote. The framing of a news story shapes how we understand and interpret an issue or situation, Sociologist Irving Goffman pointed out that frames are socially and culturally constructed. They live in our heads, and all of us, journalists or not, rely on them to make sense of our world. Deciding to frame a news story in one way forces a particular interpretation of an issue. Journalistic boosterism is reporting that focuses on the good or positive aspects of something, often in order to promote it or to boost its visibility. It is most often associated with the coverage of politics at both the local and national levels. The Quartz article is an interesting case in news framing. On its surface, it's a science story, but the author is described as a fashion reporter. What seems to emerge from the mixing of these two things, science and fashion, is a tension between verification of the claims and fascination with the new design. One of the things reporters covering new technologies, fashion or otherwise, have to be careful of is falling into an isn't-it-amazing framing. Not only does it suggest a kind of boosterism that is inappropriate for news coverage, but it can also lend itself to an uncritical recitation of claims. Boosterism often leads to reporters not as fully verifying the facts of a story or vetting sources as thoroughly as they might. This tension between verification and fascination can be found in the very headline itself. Quote, researchers say a new Nike shoe can actually help you run faster, end quote, under its subhead of Zoom. What makes it even more problematic is that readers don't find out that Nike funded the study or that Nike researchers were involved in it until the fourth paragraph. Using the word researchers in the headline makes it seem like these were independent scholars who conducted the work. A better headline might be, quote, Nike claims a new shoe helps you run faster, but does it, end quote. It might not have the zing of the original, but it does a better job of qualifying the study's claims and making clearer Nike's own boosterism of the shoe, while also putting some distance between the reporter and what they're reporting on. The reporter does seem to work away from this boosterism a bit as he moves into a discussion of the outside experts' views on Nike's study, 
But even here is a bit of a reporting problem, as for the first time readers learn that the runners in Nike's experiments knew they were using a new shoe. The reporter notes, quote, the flaw they identified, three, two, the reporter notes, quote, the flaw they identified was that the test runners knew they were running in a new shoe from Nike, which could have created a placebo effect. A placebo effect on its own can improve performance. So we have two not insignificant details, the involvement of Nike in the research and the possible placebo effect buried deep in the story. Journalists are supposed to approach their reporting with a critical eye. Journalism professors often tell their students they should imagine their role as that of professional skeptic, and the reporting in this Quartz article is not as critical as it might have been. Again, this is not about being critical in a negative sense, but simply a reminder that journalists are charged with seeking out alternate interpretations for a claim before framing it as the truth. It's not really until the very end of the story that the reporter seems to apply that kind of critical lens to his reporting. Again, that tension between verification and fascination we mentioned earlier seems to have played out through the whole article, which is exemplified in these final sentences of the story. Quote, We also can't say for sure how these findings translate outside of lab conditions. Runners have been wearing the Zoom Vaporfly, but their results, while noteworthy, haven't been abnormally fast. Nobody has completed that sub-two-hour marathon just yet. It could be only a matter of time, though. In May, Nike had some of the world's best distance runners complete a marathon in custom Vaporfly shoes. Elliot Kipchoge, the world's best marathoner, finished in two hours and 25 seconds. The fascination, however, might have been well-placed. A number of articles have been published since this 2017 study first came out, suggesting that Nike's shoes actually do help runners run faster. A 2020 article from Runner's World claims, quote, they are unequivocally the fastest shoes money can buy, end quote. So fast, in fact, that they were almost banned from international competition. The reporter then goes on to detail how the folks at Runner's World dissected the Nike shoe and similar shoes from two competitors to understand what makes it so fast. Elliot Kipchoge, by the way, did break the two-hour marathon barrier, thought to be an almost impossible feat, with a Runner's World article suggesting he may have been wearing a prototype of a new version of the Nike Vaporfly. Does this apparent speediness of Nike's expensive running shoe justify the early framing in the Quartz article? Not necessarily. The piece in Runner's World was written after a number of marathoners had worn the shoes while clocking in impressive times, providing real-world evidence in support of those initial lab findings. But the Quartz reporter could not have predicted that. Right now we're talking about research about a shoe which, on its face, is pretty low stakes. But think about reporting on research on different types of scientific discoveries, treatments for things like cancer, or the development of vaccines for things like COVID. Would you be comfortable reading reporting that veered into boosterism territory in those cases? The way a story is framed influences how the public understands something. It can make it appear the scientific consensus around something is more settled than it actually is. As you read news stories about experimental research, you should ask yourself why the story is framed the way it is and whether the reporter has done enough to vet the claims in the story. Review. 
This story reported the results of a new prototype shoe that was designed to use less energy when running. A study of runners was conducted to compare the prototype with two leading shoe types used by elite runners. The study involved the principles for good experimental design, including the randomization of runners to a shoe use sequence, replication of each sequence with runners serving as their own control for comparison between shoes. A formal comparison between the mean energy costs between the shoes was made, and a 4% difference between the prototype and the two other shoes was observed, which was formally assessed using statistical hypothesis tests. There is a logic used when testing hypotheses about treatments or different factors, including types of running shoes. However, the reporting on the study's findings was less critical than it probably should have been, leading to a kind of boosterism that does more to support a study's claims than actually vet them. To learn more, check out statistical textbooks to learn more about the statistical hypothesis testing methods described in this study. The statistical model used in this analysis had to account for the fact that multiple observations were taken for each runner. A bonus story. Are elite runners getting faster or is a special pair of Nike shoes giving them an edge? That was the headline of a story published by NBC News in January of 2020. This NBC News follow-up story was released a little more than two years after the original story about these new Nike shoes. These prototype shoes in 2017 are now the source of debate by sports officials who are investigating the availability of these shoes for runners. In six marathons run in 2019, the story reports that more than 85% of the top 36 finishers ran in these new shoes. A sub-two-hour marathon was run in October of 2019. However, this was a marathon run under ideal conditions for this racer who was accompanied by other runners who helped pace this race, and thus his time was not eligible for world record status. Ultimately, the 2017 story with its prediction of faster races and the breaking of the sub two-hour marathon was realized. Stats and Stories Podcasts. If you're interested in exploring other stories about stats and sports, the Stats and Stories Podcast has featured a number of interviews on the topic. Author Jim Albert talks about sabermetrics and player and team management in the episode Baseball and Statistics from 2013. Sports reporting was the focus of an episode with guest Terrence Moore. Football was the focus of a conversation with journalist Alan Schwartz as he discussed the prevalence of brain injuries in American football. Analytics for football was the conversation with Dennis Locke. And the sport the rest of the world knows as football, but Americans as soccer, was the focus of a conversation with Luke Bourne.